Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Glad you could join us. We are in a series of messages. We're talking about how to make a bad decision in the hopes that we might learn how to make better decisions. Now, the Bible is full of people who made some really, really bad decisions. And in those stories, God is really warning us, and he's telling us, don't make the same mistakes that they did. So what we're doing is we're looking at five of the worst decisions uh, that people made in the Bible, and we're drawing lessons out of each of those stories. We started two weeks ago with the story of Esau, who sold his future because he made a classic bad decision mistake, and that was he only thought short term. And then last week, we talked about the little-known fourth king of Israel. His name was Rehoboam. He became king at the highest point of Israel's history, but with just one foolish decision, decision he started a, a civil war that eventually led to the decline in captivity of the nation of Israel. And the reason was because of another classic bad decision blunder. He refused to accept wise counsel. He just plowed on doing what he wanted to do. Today we turn our attention to Samson. Samson's story is found in the Old Testament book of Judges, chapters 13 through 16. Now Samson really is kind of the original superhero figure. This is an image from a recent movie about Samson, how he's often depicted now in the movies, uh, a really strong guy because of his strength. Uh, so long before Thor, long before the Hulk, long before Wonder Woman and Iron Man, there was Samson, the first and greatest of all superheroes. But the big difference is that this hero with superhuman strength was real. He was not made up. He was a, a real person of history. He lived about 40 years from uh, around 1160 to 1120 B.C. And in that time, he did some pretty amazing superhuman feats. One time, we are told in the story that a lion attacked him. It's depicted in this painting. And Samson killed that lion with his bare hands. Another time, Samson was captured by thousands of his enemies, and he was bound with ropes, but then he snapped the ropes that were holding him, and then he picked up the, the jawbone of a, of a donkey that had died nearby, and that was his only weapon, and with that weapon, he ended up killing a thousand of his captors and then escaping. Another time, Samson was trapped inside a walled city, but before his pursuers could find him and kill him, he lifted the iron gates of that city out of their foundations placed them on his back, carried the city gates to a hill that overlooked the city. Now, this is not just like the front door of your house. These ancient cities, the, the, the gates were designed to be the strong point of the city's defense. They were made out of iron. They were massive. And Samson only had the strength to do that, but by carrying them to a, uh, an overlook of the city, what he was really saying is, you have no strength, no power that could match my strength. So the question is, where did Samson get all of this power? Well, something would happen right before every great feat of strength. For example, this is what we read about the lion incident. Judges 14, 5 through 6, we read this. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power, so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. And then this is what it says just before the great escape where he was bound and held by thousands of his enemies. Judges 15, 14 through 15. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. So you're probably noticing the pattern. Before every great act of strength, we read, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. 
and filled him with this tremendous superhuman power and strength. So the source of his power was not gamma rays like the Hulk or amazing tech like Iron Man or the mythical Greek gods like Wonder Woman. No, Samson's strength came directly from the one God who has created everything. Now, for all we know, Samson was just kind of an average-sized guy. In fact, that's my suspicion because there seems to be tremendous shock and surprise at his strength. But however strong he appeared, the source of his superhuman strength was an ongoing mystery that people in the story were always trying to find out. Now, because the source of his strength was a God thing, that meant that Samson's relationship with God was the key to everything, to his strength. But Samson turned his back on God. He lost his strength, and then he lost his, his life. Why? Well, he caved into the pressure of people. Samson made a classic mistake like many of us tend to make. It's very easy for us to give in to the pressure of what people want us to do rather than to do what it is that God wants us to do. In Samson's case, a woman by the name of Delilah turned his affections for her into pressure on him and got him to betray God and the secret to his strength. Now, why did she do that? Well, it's because she herself was under the pressure from the people that she had grown up with. People pressure is just a fact of life. We all want to belong. We all want to be accepted and valued by the people around us. And that gives the people that we surround ourselves with a great deal of power in our lives. And depending on the group around us, the power of people pressure can either be a good or a bad influence on the decisions that we make. So the question we want to address this morning is, how can we learn to make better decisions in the face of this relentless people pressure? And Samson, of course, is a lesson in what not to do. And we're going to examine the story of Samson this morning in light of a verse in the New Testament that summarizes and identifies the three key components that are a part of the pressure that people put on our lives. This is the verse, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 2. It says, We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. Three words that all start with the letter C describe the components of people pressure. They are classify, compare, and commend. I call these the three C's of people pressure. First, what we do is we classify people. We put ourselves and other people in different categories, and then we compare ourselves to them. And the purpose for all of this is so that we might commend then ourselves in order to feel better about ourselves. The phrase for this process, this treadmill of, of classifying and comparing and commending, is that it is not wise to do this. If you want to make really bad decisions, what this is saying is then just keep doing these three. So we're going to look at these three in light of the story of Samson. First comes the attitude of classifying. And we're going to focus on the attitude because the problem is not with classifying itself. It's with the attitude that often accompanies the classifying of ourselves and other people. To classify is simply to assigned to a category. And classifying then is, well, it's, it's an important part of, of understanding reality and of navigating the real world. 
children learn early on to begin to classify or properly put reality into different categories. They learn shape categories and color categories. You know, is this a square or is this a circle? Is this blue or is this red? And then they learn people categories. This is, this is my mother. This is my father. This is a brother. This is a sister. And then they learn that really important people category of this is a stranger. It turns out putting people in a right category is really important. You don't want a child to trust a stranger like they would their parent. That can be very dangerous. And as we grow, the number of categories expand to meet the increasing complexities of life. Is this a boss or is this a coworker? That's a really important distinction. Is this a friend or is this an enemy? Again, another very important distinction, and on and on it goes. The big challenge of classifying people is not that we do it. We really have to do it if we're going to analyze our world and navigate rightly through it. The problem is this. We tend to move from the act of classifying, which is very important, to the attitude of classifying. I experienced this when we moved here from Texas 30 years ago. About a year after we'd moved, I returned to Texas to spend some time with some friends, and I got together with a particular friend. And as soon as he saw me, he looked at me and he said, wow, I can tell you're a Californian now. And um, he had his facts right. I was living in California. But I picked up an attitude that was attached to the statement of the fact that I was living in California right now. And so I asked, what do you mean I look like a Californian now? He said, well, you're dressing like them. Well, that sparked an attitude in me. And I thought to myself, well, I can tell you're still a Texan. And I had some other thoughts and attitudes that went with that, and I'm really grateful that I didn't express my thoughts or my attitudes so that we can remain friends to this day. But this is what we tend to do. We may properly identify people and the differences and the different categories that people are in, but we tend to go beyond that and we add an attitude, either an attitude of superiority or even an attitude of inferiority. And this attitude is where we get into the people pressure problem. Now, the story of Samson, really like every story, begins not only by identifying the characters of the story, but identifying the categories that these characters belong to, classifies the main characters of the story. So we read the story as it begins in Judges 13, verse 1. It says, again, the Israelites, that's a category, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines, another category, for 40 years. So the Philistines, they were the power class of the day. They had most of the money, most of the economic success. They had the strongest army and all of the other success that came with this. The Israelites, they were, well, they were of a different class. They were of a lower class. They were the nation that God had established, starting with Abraham, to be the carriers of his truth into the world. As God said again and again, they are to be a light to the Gentiles, a light to the world of who I am. But they did evil, as it says here, in the eyes of God, not just once, but again and again. And so by the time Samson is born, his people, the Israelites, have been dominated by the Philistines for generations now. So that's the classification. That's where we're at. we got Philistines and we got Israelites. Samson's a part of the Israelite group. The story continues, verses 2 through 5. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are sterile and childless, but you're going to conceive and have a son. 
Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head because the boy is to be a Nazarite. Well, there's another classification. Set apart to God from birth. And he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So what is a Nazarite? Samson's not only a member of the Israelite class, but he's also a part of a subclass called a Nazarite. What is that? The word Nazarite literally means to be set apart or dedicated to God. That's what the word means. So in those days, you could make a special vow to God and become a Nazarite, indicating your commitment to live for God's purposes, whatever they may be. If you made that decision, then to mark that vow, you would eat certain foods and not eat other foods. You would not drink fermented drink, and you would not cut your hair. Now, you would do these things not because it was wrong to do them. Everyone did them. No, it's just these were visible indicators of that vow that you had made. Now, what's interesting about Samson is that he didn't make this vow himself. God made this decision before Samson was born. God approached Samson's mother before he was even conceived and told her to begin to enact the indicators of this vow before her son was born. And then as Samson was born, he then had the choice of whether or not he was going to live out God's call on his life. Now, what Samson was given was an amazing privilege, an amazing opportunity. He was given an assignment from God before he was even born. Now, God doesn't do that very often. It was an amazing assignment, amazing privilege. But Samson never really took it as a privilege. As you read through the story, it becomes pretty clear Samson never saw it that way. And that's because God's call on his life put him in a class that was despised in the world that he grew up in. I mean, it was bad enough for him that he was born a Jew. They were the underdogs of the world, especially that part of the world. They were the servants. They were the laughingstock. They were the weak. But to make matters worse, Samson wasn't just an everyday Israelite. As bad as that was, he was a Nazarite. They were the weirdos of the Jewish community. So he looked weird with all of that hair. He ate weird things with those dietary restrictions. And he, of course, would never have been invited to any of the parties because of that fermented drink restriction. So early on in the story, and really throughout the story, it becomes very clear, Samson wanted out of this vow. He wanted out of this assignment. He wanted to be someone different than God created him to be. And this is what happens when we classify ourselves. We tend to develop an attitude of, uh, I really wish I was someone different. I wish I wasn't me. The evidence of Samson's feelings on this matter become very clear. Judges 14, 1 through 3, we read this. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I've seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Now the way marriages were arranged is the fathers would get together and basically make a financial agreement. And so that's what Samson's saying is, I've fallen in love with this woman. I want to marry her. Why don't you start talking to her dad and making the arrangements? While his father and mother replied, isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives, among all your people, our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She is the right one for me. Why? Samson didn't want anything to do with his own people. And he saw marriage as a key way to make that change, a key way to advance classes for him. 
But why is it that Salmon had all of this superhuman strength in the first place? Was it just for individual feats of strength and amazement? No. We read earlier this statement, the purpose was to begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. But what Samson did is rather than take the gifts that God had given him and the call that God had placed on his life and use those gifts and that call for God's purposes, what Samson did is he decided to use those gifts to advance his standing in the world and climb classes. And this is what we tend to do. We take our gifts and we leverage them for our own purposes and not God's purposes. What's interesting is as you read the entire Samson story, almost all of it takes place inside Philistine territory. That's not where he lived. He lived in Israel. But the whole story takes place one trip after another as he goes to Philistine. Why is he always hanging out in Philistine? It's because that's who he really wanted to be. That's where he really wanted to be born. That's the call that he really wanted to be on his life. That is who he continually measured himself by, the Philistines. And this brings us to the second seat, the deception that comes with comparing, the deception of comparing. So here's the way it works. First of all, we classify ourselves. And we may or may not do this accurately, but often we add an attitude to that. And then we move from com- com classifying ourselves to comparing ourselves with other people. And the pressure only mounts. Now, why can't we just stop with the fact that people are different? Why do we have to develop an attitude about them and an attitude about us? Well, it goes all the way back to the fact that there's a break in our relationship with God. Our sin has separated us from him. And what that means is that we are now desperate to belong to something that makes us feel better about ourselves. And one of the ways we do that is we look down on some groups and we look up at other groups. Now, if we're looking down, obviously we feel better about ourselves because, well, we're not in that classification. We're better than them. But even if we look up at another group, it still serves its purpose because now by looking up, we have charted a clear path for us to feel better about ourselves. If we can just be like that group, if we can just be like that person, now we know how to climb, how to feel better about us. The word compare has two parts to it. The prefix C-O-M means to stand beside, to stand with or stand beside. Par, the root of the word, means simply to judge. This is where we get par in golf. You know, it's the standard by which the scores are measured. You're either over par or under par. And this is the way comparison works with people. We're either over par or we're under par. So to compare then means to use someone else as the standard to measure yourself. They become the reason you either feel good about yourself or the reason you feel bad about yourself. So for Samson, every trip from his home in Israel to a city in Philistine was really a comparison trip. The cities in Philistine were much more amazing than the cities in Israel. I mean, we don't know for sure, but most likely the place that Samson lived in would have been far less impressive than all the places he visited in Philistine territory. And women, or women were more impressive too to Samson for some reason. He was more impressed with the women in Philistine than with the women in Israel. And all of this is because Samson really wanted, from the beginning, the Philistine dream. That's who he wanted to be. His first attempt was to marry into his dream. 
This is before Delilah. This is the woman that he asked his dad to arrange the marriage with. They became engaged, but his fiancée was pressured by her family and friends to betray Samson on the day before they were married. That led to a confrontation, a confrontation between Samson and the Philistines in which 30 men were killed, 30 Philistine men were killed, and most of that year's harvest for the Philistines was burned to the ground by Samson. Now this made Samson enemy number one with the very people that he wanted the approval of. And this is what comparison tends to do. Comparison usually leads to deception and to some really impulsive and bad decisions. As it says in the passage we read in Corinthians, when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. You make a lot of bad decisions when you compare. When you use other people as a standard to measure your life, you're always going to come to the wrong conclusion about yourself and, honestly, the wrong conclusion about them. One of the qualifications of being a standard of measurement, that word standard is important because that means it doesn't change. So an inch is a standard of measurement. And an inch was the same size last year as it is now as it will be next year. So it's a standard of measurement. And when it comes to measuring something, that can be helpful. But people are anything but standard. People are very different. And they are continually changing and moving. And the life that they're living is always in motion. So to compare yourself to somebody else is to take a picture of one moment in time in their life and line up against one moment in time in your life, and it gives you a completely inaccurate read. It's like using a ruler that continues to change in size every time you measure it. You you can never get an accurate read on what's the real truth about this. Let me show you a picture of our 1975 family Christmas photo. This is my family, 1975. You can tell this is the 70s. As you look at the, uh, the hair, uh, this was the time, if you lived back then, um, you'll recognize the leisure suit look. Uh, I'm the guy on the right there in the, I guess, rust would be the color. Um, but this was the time where you'd order out of the Sears catalog, and because of three boys, we just got the three colors that they had, it looked like, and then we, we wore those. Now, in this picture... We all look like a happy family. I mean, we look a little weird because it's the 70s, but back then, this, this was normal stuff. But five minutes before this picture, we were not a happy family. That dog that you see in the picture had just thrown up right in front of himself all over that carpet. And that began a scramble in which my parents eventually got into an argument, and I yelled at my brother. But then we pulled it all together, cleaned up the mess, smiled, the picture was taken, And that became our Christmas photo. Now, it's a deceiving image. Now, we all laugh, my family, at this picture now because we remember the chaos that preceded this. But that photo went out, I think, to hundreds of people. You know, our Christmas photo, we mail it out every year. And I don't know for sure, but if they did what we do to photos, you know, if you're on Instagram, that's basically a comparison catalog. You you measure yourself by everyone else. Well, this is what Christmas photos used to be. You just kind of look at their family and say, man, wish I lived in an amazing family like that. But if you looked at that photo, that would be an inaccurate read because that photo didn't describe all of the chaos that preceded it. And this is an important point to make. If you order from the comparison catalog, you will never get what you see in the picture because what you see in the picture 
was just a small slice of a moment in time that's gone. And if you say, I want that, you'll never get that. Every picture of every life is just one frame. And the truth is, we're really more like a movie, a bunch of frames compiled over time. And so we can never compare our entire lives with anyone else's entire life. So what we tend to do when we compare is we don't measure our whole lives because we don't know everything about them. What we do is we take one part of their life, maybe the car that they're driving, and we say, oh, I wish I had a car like that. Or maybe the job that they have or the homes that they live in or maybe the money that they have. You can take that one item and say, well, I wish I had that. But when you do that, you don't ever get just that one thing because that's not the way life is. If you were to know everything about them, you would probably find a bunch of stuff about them that you would say, well, no, I don't want that part. I don't want their, maybe their health challenges. I, I, I like my health better. Or I don't want maybe their family challenges. I like my family better. Whatever it is, you're never getting the whole picture of somebody. So we're just seeing one part. But life turns out to be a package deal. We are the sum total of all of the things that people might envy and all of the things that people will not envy. And they are the same. And God has given us the package that we are, who we are, everything, the good and the bad, the pain and the joy, for a reason. He's made us different for a reason. And that is because he's given us different assignments. Samson was different for a reason. God gifted him with the power to challenge the power of the Philistine army, which is where Goliath came from. But rather than measure himself next to what God had called him to be and gifted him to be, Samson decided that he was going to spend his whole life measuring himself next to a group of people that he really wanted to be like. So God said, Samson, this is who I made you to be, and this is what I want you to do. And Samson spent his whole life saying, I wish I was somebody else. And that's where people pressure leads us to. We tend to do the same thing. The sad thing for Samson, which is often true of us, is that Samson never then, if he lived for this people pressure as he did, he never gained the approval of God or the people he so desperately wanted to be a part of. He lost both. He spent the last moments of his life blind and being forced to dance before a laughing audience of Philistine dignitaries. What an ironic end. The very people he wanted to be like, he was laughed at at the end of his life. The point is really clear from this story. If we decide to bow to the pressure of people and measure ourselves by people rather than what God wants us to be and what he wants us to do, we will end up losing not only their approval, but ultimately God's approval. And that brings us to the pressure part, the pressure of commending, commending ourselves. It's a tremendous amount of pressure to use people to measure your life, to use people to commend yourself by. A commendation is a formal compliment. That's what the word means. It's a formal compliment. So, for example, the military hands out commendations. They are formal statements or letters that complement heroic action on the field of battle. Law enforcement does the same thing. They hand out commendations for heroic actions. Letters signed by those in authority. And if you're looking for a job, 
you request a letter of what? Recommendation. RE means to go back. So you go back to someone you worked for and you ask them to describe and give approval of your job performance and sign their name to the bottom of it. It formally recognizes your work performance. So what does it mean exactly to commend yourself then? That's what this says. We commend ourselves. What does that look like? I mean, it's pretty pathetic to write a letter about yourself, about how great you are, signed by you. So how, how do you exactly commend yourself? Well, here's what we tend to do. After we've classified ourselves and other people, and then we've compared ourselves to other people, that allows us to come up with a group of people whose signature we really want on the bottom of the invisible letter commending us. And we then go about the business of trying to get people to add their signature of commendation to the bottom of our letter. It's an invisible letter, but that's what we do. This is what Samson did primarily with women. One woman after another. They were his preferred letter of commendation. If he could get them to love him, then at least for one moment or a brief moment, his lifelong running away from God and all the emptiness that brought with it felt a little less empty if he could get a signature from a woman on the bottom of his letter of commendation. This is exactly what happened with Delilah. Samson fell in love with her, which meant in part that her signature on his letter meant more to him than anything else, more than God's approval. But it turns out she was also searching for signatures. She wanted the signatures of her family and friends that she'd grown up with more than anything else. So they pressured her and she pressured Samson. Because when you want someone's signature, people normally don't just sign the letter of commendation without getting something in return. This is where the pressure comes from. If you want my approval, you will do this and you will do that. This is what happened with Samson and Delilah. So they pressured Delilah. She pressured Samson to give up the secret to his strength. He resisted, but she persisted. This is what we read about the pressure in Judges 16, verse 16. It came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. That's a lot of pressure. Day after day after day. Well, given this relentless pressure, he finally gave in and told her about his hair. And so while he slept, she had some men come in and shave his hair. He must have been sleeping pretty deep. And then we read this in Judges 16, verse 20. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. And then in some of the saddest words in the Bible, we read this, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. He didn't know. What was it about the hair? We see Samson had not been a good Nazarite because he really never wanted to be a Nazarite. He never wanted to accept the gifting, the uniqueness, the call that God had placed on his life. He wanted to be somebody else. And what that meant is that he broke Nazarite vow after Nazarite vow after Nazarite vow. When you read through the story, it's clear he went to a bunch of parties where they drank a lot of fermented drink. So he broke that vow. Again and again, he would eat the wrong food for being a Nazarite, so he broke that vow. At one point, 
we are told he ate honey out of a, the carcass of a dead lion, and so he broke the Nazarite vow, which was to never touch a, a dead thing. He broke that vow. It turns out the one vow that he never did break was shaving his hair, cutting his hair. He never did. Why? Well, we really don't know. My guess is this. I think that hair for Samson was the last strand that kept him hanging on, clinging really to the God that he was turning away from. It's kind of the one last tie. But then, in exchange for the commendation of a woman, he caved into that pressure, and the one last symbolic strand to God was cut. And God finally said, all right, Samson, you've asked me to leave for decades now, and you've now cut the last symbolic strand with me, and I will honor your request, and I will leave you. And God left. And that decision cost Samson everything. His eyes were gouged. He was captured. His eyes were gouged out. He was captured. He was imprisoned. And he was left to rot in this prison. But what happens to hair? It grows. And in time, his hair grew back. And in one last moment, I believe, of redemption, one last feat of strength where Samson finally surrendered to the unique call that God had placed on his life, he asked God to restore his strength and his power. And with that power, he brought down the temple of the Philistine God, killing himself and everyone who had gathered to laugh at him as he was forced to dance in, her, in their presence blind. And as you read through the, stamp, the, the story of Samson, you just have to wonder, I wonder what could have been if Samson had accepted who God made him to be. I wonder what would have been different. And you have this strong sense, and I encourage you to read through the entire story. You have this strong sense that here was yet another life begun with so much promise, ended in sadness, all because decision after decision after decision was made under the pressure of what people wanted Samson to do rather than what God wanted Samson to do. So the question as you read this story and think about it is, how can you and I resist all of the people pressure that we encounter? How do we, how do we get off this classifying, comparing, commending, merry-go-round treadmill that adds so much pressure to our lives? As you sit down and analyze, it's pretty amazing how much we do just because of people pressure. The only answer that we are given is this one. We are to accept only one signature on the bottom of our letter of commendation, and that is the signature of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way we get free of this. 2 Corinthians 10, 18, just a few verses after the summary of the three pieces of people pressure, we read this, For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. What this is saying is that in the end, it will not matter how many signatures you've gathered on your letter of commendation, either for you or against you. Those signatures won't matter. Only one name will matter at the bottom of the letter, your letter. And that is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The best, most freeing news of all 
is we don't have to measure up in order to get that signature of commendation on our life. We don't have to measure up. In fact, all we have to do is be honest about our sin, be honest about the fact that none of us measure up when we are measured not next to people, but next to the never-changing standards of what God says is good and right. None of us measure up. And it's only as we are honest about that and become, come before Jesus and say, Jesus, I can't measure up. I can't measure up to what people want me to be. I can't measure up to what you want me to be. And we turn to him and say, would you have mercy on me? Would you forgive me? And at that moment, we receive the mercy of Jesus, and he signs his name to the bottom of our letter of commendation next to the word approved. There's no better news than that. The challenge for us, though, is you can't see that signature. You can't see that letter. It's true and real, but like so many of the important things in life, they're not visible. I mean, if, if you could just go to a, a drawer, maybe in a desk this afternoon, if you're feeling really bad about yourself, and you could pull out a letter from God with your name on the top, and the word approved, and the signature of Jesus Christ next to it, that would really help. You could see the letter for yourself. You could, you could know visually, I'm okay. It doesn't matter what they think of me. I've, I've got the signature that matters right here. I'm looking at it right now. But we can't do that. We can't see that. And what that means is even if you've made this decision, even if you've asked Jesus to sign his name to the bottom of your life letter, it's still easy for us to live under the pressure of ongoing solicitation of people's signatures. Trying to get people to commend us. So how do we free ourselves from this? Well, the first step is to get the letter. To be honest about your sin. Ask Jesus for forgiveness and get his signature on the bottom. But then the next step is important in you experiencing that freedom. The next step is you then begin to follow him. Over time, you learn how to live a life that pleases him. Now, you do that not to get the signature. The signature is already there. Whether you do this or don't, the signature remains. You're approved because of what Jesus did, not because of anything you did. You're approved. But you cannot experience the freedom of that approval unless you begin to actually learn how to follow Jesus. Because as you follow Jesus, what you're saying is his approval is real. It matters. If you say, I want the, I want the letter, but I'm not going to do anything to approve, what you're really saying is, I don't think the letter is real. It is but you're acting like it isn't. So we work to measure ourselves and to grow, not so we can get the signature of approval, but so the signature of approval can become real in our experience. And then we begin over time, not instantly, but over time, we begin to get freer and freer and freer from the pressure of what people think of us. And that's a, that's, that's a gift. And we experience what this verse says, that it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. He's the one we're going to stand before in the end. And in the end, we will see the approval with our own eyes. And it's the greatest gift you could ever receive. Let's pray. Father, we
admit, although our story is not exactly like Samson, there are many themes that are very true of us. You have created us uniquely, and yet we spend so much of our time wanting to be somebody else. You've called us to do some things with the gifts you've given, and we struggle to do something we'd rather do. And then we spend so much of our time doing whatever we can to convince people to sign their names to the bottom of our letter of commendation. And that brings so much pressure on us, so much fear, so much guilt that's not true. So, Father, I pray for those in this room that have yet to come to the point where they're willing to admit the fact that they don't measure up. None of us do. I pray that they would make that admission and they would ask you to sign your approval to the bottom of their letter because of the price you've paid for their sin. And then, God, I pray that you'd help us who have made that decision to follow you, to obey you, to learn about how to please you, not because we need your approval. We've already got that. But so that we might begin to experience the freedom in this life that comes with being approved and commended by you. We thank you for that tremendous gift. And we pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave us this gift. Amen.